Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dave Hancock. Dave is an experienced physiotherapist, strength and conditioning coach, and performance director who has worked at the highest levels of professional and international sport across multiple sporting domains. Dave is also the CEO of Apollo, a sports software and data solution company, and he is also the managing director of a private chain of physio clinics. As you're probably guessing, Dave is an incredibly hardworking, dynamic, and highly experienced practitioner, so I've got no doubts that you'll enjoy today's episode. Just before we get into today's episode, 2023 has seen the long-awaited launch of the Athletic Shoulder online course from Inform Performance's own Ben Ashworth. The Athletic Shoulder online course features five modules released with 10 hours of immediately available content. This content is ideal for physical therapists or physios, coaches or anyone that works and supports individuals that have high-performance shoulder demands. The link for this exciting release will be in the episode description and in the show notes at informperformance.com. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vault Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the force frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the force frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the force frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Inform Performance is a proud partner of Humac Norm by CSMI. Are you using your Cybex, Biodex or Humac Isokinetic system to its fullest potential? Most machines are used 90% for training and 10% for testing. If this is not you, check out the free online course Isokinetics 101 for the classroom by CSMI. In 90 minutes, you will learn how Isokinetic machines are used in the clinic for testing and to improve range of motion, stability, control and strength. If you need CEUs, earn 8 CEUs by signing up and completing our full online course, Isokinetics 101 Online. This course is approved for PTs, PTAs and ATCs. To find out more, visit humacnorm.com and head to resources. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and here is today's guest, Dave Hancock. Dave, welcome to the show, mate. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Andy. You know, your background, as as people are probably going to hear in a second, will speak for itself. But just in case there's any listeners who are first encountering you via this conversation, would you just be able to walk us through your background and, and give some context on yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm a doctor of physio, CSCS, strength coach, performance director. Um, I have been in the industry for 30 years now. Uh, I started um, back in 1993 um, where I worked for Leeds Rugby League or Leeds Rhinos in the UK uh, as an assistant physio. Then I went to Wolves FC in the Premier League um, where I was there for five years as an assistant and then sort of promoted to be um, head physio. 
Um, then I went from there uh, in the late 90s to Blackburn Rovers and set up their youth academy. So I worked at youth level, um, designed their training facility and implemented many different things from strength and conditioning, speed training, uh, nutrition, education for coaches, you know, literally to develop youth athletes. And then from there, I went to Leeds United as the head physio um, and again designed their training facility up at Thorpe Arch in 2000. And then from there, I got headhunted to go to Chelsea Football Club where I was the head physio at Chelsea um, with Jose Mourinho a few first time round and won a few cups and trophies. And then again, I got... Uh, Headhunted to go to the New York Knicks in the NBA, where I was the performance director there for seven years. Um, I also uh, run a couple of companies. I run a physiotherapy business called A Therapy, which we have clinics in uh, London, uh, New York, and LA. Um, mainly osteopathy, physiotherapy, um, based within gyms, Equinox, Virgin Active gyms in, in the UK. Uh, and most of my time now is spent. Um, running a software company. I'm a founder of Apollo. Uh, I took over the company about five years ago and decided to basically start again and build a brand new software platform that would be cutting edge um, for understanding data, injury prevention, um, and overall performance and utilizing uh, different products within an ecosystem that allows a user to bespoke what they're actually wanting to look at um, the questions that they want to ask specifically to their needs and their sports within the environments that they're in. Cool. And we'll get on a little bit more into um, data and Apollo in a second, but um, when we connected earlier in the week, very briefly, um, we very briefly also mentioned your blind screen approach. And um, I'd selfishly like to just hear a little bit more about this. And I'm no doubt uh, other other practitioners will find it interesting to hear about. So, um, can you just shed some, some light on that one? Yeah, so obviously being a physio for a number of years and obviously uh, having privileges and opportunities to work with some of the most amazing athletes in the world, um, you know, from David Beckham to Kevin Durant to like these incredible athletes and rehabilitate their issues and problems, I very much feel that a lot of physios, you know, can get good at rehab, right? They can get someone back from an injury or from surgery. But because most people follow the same sort of regimes of doing that, there's an art to physio in my view. And the art is psychologically with the athlete or with the patient. There's a big component of that. There's a big component of trust. Obviously, keeping up with modern day techniques and views, uh, principles that are still sort of embedded in when I qualified in the very early 90s um, and I got a little bit bored if I was honest with you um, so I was like how do I challenge myself to think out of the box and look at things now compared to how I used to look at things 5, 10, 15 years ago so I get asked to see a lot of athletes especially now that I live in America and a lot of uh, professional athletes and um, And my view is if you can prevent the injury and prevent things that are happening with these athletes, it's absolutely golden because injury is is ravaging sport. It's basically killing teams if your star quarterback goes down 
it can basically just finish your season, right? Same in the NBA, same in any sport. Your star pitcher goes down. There's no way you're going to basically be making the playoffs and going deep in the playoffs unless if you've got a huge squad to come in and back up. And a lot of organisations, with the amount of money that they're spending on these athletes now, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars per week that they're paying these people. So it's a big industry and it's a big cost. And I don't think injury prevention is done well at all. I haven't come across one organization, even from the My Apollo, and we've obviously got some really big names like Manchester United Football Club, Brighton, the Phillies, uh, Washington Nationals, you know, USC, Tennessee Football, Baltimore Ravens, you know, many different teams or AFL teams. Um, I, I see what they're doing and I still personally don't think that it's done well. They're not using the data in the right way to prevent injury. So I basically challenged myself and I started getting more involved in movement and movement analysis over the last 20 years, really. Done lots of biomechanical courses, lots of movement screen courses from FMS to Diane Lee's work to Mark Comerford's work. And my own philosophy about injury is that the body will always move, no matter what. And obviously, athletes will want to move a lot quicker than your average Joe, uh, even with an injury. They will want to move, and the body is made to move. And I think what happens is that over time, most injuries in sport don't get fully rehabilitated. They get back, they play a couple of weeks, seeing the trainer back in the gym, they have a program, but it pretty much the structure of the original injury just moves on because the player's moved on and you're fully fit now and that's fully healed. And as we know, that's never the case. And I think what happens is that the body will move and there'll be an adaptation that will occur, whether there's a restriction in a joint, tension in a muscle, tightness within a nerve, and even mechanically the chain will move slightly differently. And over repetitions and years and months of doing these new changes, there's an adaptation that the body can continue to perform at the highest level, but it's slightly different to how it originally was. And I think as we get older and the body wears, um, hence, you know, why age and past medical history is a massive component of injury prediction or injury prevention, and we know that scientifically, that there are these fault lines that start to occur within the way that the body moves. So what I was, how we're taught to take a subjective and then an objective, you're very much blinded because you are, whether you're looking at differential diagnosis or whether you're basically homing in at a problem like the knee or the ankle or where the person's pain is or what the problem is or the tightness. And I think things get missed. And when you're in this sort of cocoon of a team, so, you know, when I was at Chelsea or whether I was with the England national team or whether I was at the Knicks or wherever I've had you know, the fortunate to privilege to work, you're very much just in that cocoon and sometimes you're not thinking laterally. It's like, I've got to get this guy back fit. This is a problem with the knee. Here's all my check boxes that we do. We look at this. We work on glute needs. We do that. We do this. And all of a sudden we get and the, we do our stuff and the player goes back. But what we're not really doing is thinking beyond that and it's very reactive rather than proactive. 
So this blind screen was like, I don't really want to know anything about someone because I think your judgment and your objective markers and your diagnostic skills and your way you're going to potentially treat that patient is clouded. So I sort of over the last 10 years have sort of developed this theory that I'm just going to look, feel, touch and let my clinical skills, let my movement analysis skills, let my touch and feel skills, palpation, mobilization, um, go to work. And obviously, as you get better at this as a professional, you, you know, your, your, your hands and your eyes, you know, are really your, the brainchild of what we, what we were taught. And I think a lot of therapists, like modern-day therapists, and obviously I, I employ quite a few of them, that, you, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten years qualified, some of that is lost because the way that they were taught is lost. So this blind screen takes about an hour, and I look at various different movement patterns. And I, I'm a big believer that in order for a joint, a, a joint or a, an action to occur, a movement to occur, the body needs to stabilize at some place or several places to allow a movement to, to occur. And a lot of it occurs around the spine and the pelvis. So if you're moving a hip, at speed or a knee or an ankle at speed or the whole of that chain. You have to have pretty good stability markers around the pelvis and the lumbar spine. And it might be that something's uh, being affected further up the chain. It might be a scapular thoracic issue. It might be a neck issue. It might be an adaptation of, you know, shoulder drop. And this adaptation is something that occurs over time. So what I, I put together is a multitude of different movement screens, musculoskeletal head-to-toe evaluation, joint integrity, range of movement, neural, lots of neural testing, and sort of come up with this sort of jigsaw about where there are these fault lines. And then I put those fault lines together, and basically over time I start seeing more and more of these patterns. And you then can find where some of these patterns or these what I call fault lines are and then I basically talk to them, all right, now tell me your subjective. Now tell me about all the injuries that you've had in the past. And then what I'm finding is when they talk to me about all the injuries that they've had, it's related to everything that I'm seeing from my screen. And I guess like one of the one of the best things about it is you can you can see them with a completely blank canvas and clear mind. And then either way, you're gonna still get the traditional assessments and stuff like that done and questioning done but if you go the other way around the traditional way around then you've automatically got some some noise in your head and maybe some confirmation biases and I guess it just you know you can go that way around you can't go the other way around and still do it with a clear mind absolutely and I think you know also you test yourself and as I said you know if you've rehabbed so many ACLs and ruptured Achilles tendons and you know you get pretty good at it and People come to you and you go again and you've got your own various different, you know, artistic ways of doing those exercises, using evidence-based medicine, using past experiences, etc. And at the end of the day, if you get results, more people come back to you, you know, and more people keep knocking on your door and you get the opportunity then to work with another athlete and another athlete. And that athlete talks to that athlete and that's the way of the world in, in, in medicine and, and rehabilitation and therapy we're in. But what 
what I don't think is done well is actually, well, let's try and see if we can identify all these risk factors, all these fault lines, and go to work on that, maybe at the same time as rehabilitating the actual problem. And if, if someone walks in and says, I've just had this done, this is my problem, those fault lines, you get completely clouded and therefore they sometimes get missed. And even worse, when you're in that environment with a team, that you just either are you know, under pressure, haven't got the time, uh, and things do get missed. And my view is that they are the key components to actually try and prevent things from happening. Just out of curiosity, how do the, how do the athletes respond to you assessing in that way? Because obviously when they get to you and they're already an elite athlete, that it's not their first rodeo and they've had you know, probably countless practitioners, whether that's an AT, physio, whatever. They've probably had a lot of people assess them in that traditional model how do they how do they generally respond when you when you change that up on them well i think a lot of the time they they turn around and say well why hasn't anyone else told me this <laughs> okay so that's the first one and the second one is when you start identifying so i'll give you an example a very famous nfl player okay very famous like one of the elite of the elite and he had had previous surgery and he said to me last season, I, I want to work with you. So the first thing is he started to try and tell me about the surgeries and the injuries that he's had. And he's 27, so he's been in the league a few years. And I said, stop. I don't want to hear anything. And when I went through the evaluation with him, everything was leading to all the problems on the side that he had had. And he's like, well... That makes perfect sense to me because I've had this and I've had that and I've had this. And it's exactly where you're identifying where a lot of my fault lines are. Now, if you turn around and said to me, right, I had this done here and this surgery done there and this surgery done there and I had a problem here, but my brain would start thinking, okay, you know, let's check ACL, let's check this, you know, ankle problem, let's check this. And then you're going into the, subjective how we've been taught how we've been embedded in what we've done well if you've got no noise and literally you, all you've got is your eyes and your hands and your brain i find that that's a lot more challenging to sort of work with and then there's times where you know like for instance there's times where i've missed a test so i haven't included it in like my full repertoire of like the screen it might be like let i'll give an example i did one where i missed a femoral nerve stretch and then the person turned around and said to me, yeah, I've got, but I've had this, this, and this issue. And all of a sudden I've gone, actually, I should have done the femoral nerve stretch in part of this process, which is the biggest, you know, the big part of the screen. And I did it and it was hugely positive. So then all of a sudden that comes into the jigsaw play that I've put together. And then that, that gets into a priority of, right, we need to work on this femoral nerve stretch as well as this, this, and this. And I, I look at them like, as I said, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. I, I think there's definitely links. And I, I play a massive emphasis around the ability for you to stabilize your spine and your pelvis and mobilize and move your hips or your limbs, especially rotation. I think a lot of injury occurs around rotation. Um, I think you can look at all of the sort of data around decelerations and eccentric work. But my view is you're only looking at one plane. So if you take, for instance, a Nord ball, and you're just basically looking at the eccentric control of the hamstrings and you're looking at, say, 
asymmetry. Well, first of all, nothing's been proven that asymmetry of the hamstrings leads to hamstring injuries, right? But everyone is just looking at the data. But really what's important is, is like, well, you've got three hamstrings and they cover two joints and you have different angles of those hamstrings and they do different things in different timings, whether they're extending the hip or basically flexing the knee. So if you put that idea into a screen and look at someone from a functional movement perspective, those identifications will be more clear when you're not just homing in at, say, I've had a previous hamstring problem. Because it might not be anything to do with the hamstring. It might be something to do with the lack of control in the external oblique to stabilise the pelvis to allow the hip to move. It might be something to do with the neural dynamics of, of the sciatic nerve that's getting you know crushed, or, or you might have a segmental instability at L4, L5, or L5S1, and this clearly shift, and that's causing issues on the nerve, and that's causing issues for the hamstring to re-injure. So the neurological input is coming from a lack of stability somewhere further up the chain. And I guess, you know, you've obviously, you know, hearing you talk now, you've got a lot of experience as a practitioner, and and now maybe you've got the the sort of luxury of zooming out through Apollo, um, helping teams and practitioners solve their problems or, or work with their athletes. I'd, I'd kind of love to know how you specifically see the current state of affairs as it relates to kind of teams using and implementing data to sort of solve or assess their athletes. Very broad, so you can you can go where you want with it, or I can I can narrow that one down for you. I think there's a lot of bullshit out there. I think there's a lot of smoke. I think people are going down sort of the AI trait, which you know we do some um, machine learning uh, stuff, but I. I don't think teams have got their houses in order. I think organizations are on too many silos, too many different platforms. Uh, they're not centralizing their data. I think the data visualizations that are in the platforms that are out there are terrible. I don't think that the, the there's enough bespoke for what the, the practitioner wants, i.e., can you produce me a report to track X, Y, and Z? And I want to be able to tell a story to have an effect. And I think at the minute, organizations are using it, you know, to go to trade shows and say, hey, look, I'm this practice, look what I'm doing. But really not what they're not doing is looking at the big picture. And for me, there's two things that any, whether you're a strength coach, sports scientist, osteopath, physio, ATC, doctor, AD, whatever you're doing, whether you're at high school, collegiate, professional level, there's two big things that you as a performance team should be doing. One is that you should be looking at your injury statistics and seeing year on year whether you can reduce some of those injuries. So there's obviously not much you can do with regard to contact injuries, but there's plenty you can do with regard to soft tissue injuries, timing of the injury. What type of injuries are you is occurring over a long period of time looking at the data? Five, ten years worth of your historical data. What position? When does it occur in the season? To give you an example, the NFL is horrendous. Most of the injuries that occur in the NFL are between day three and day ten of preseason. And clearly what that tells me from someone on the outside and obviously someone that works with a number of NFL players and listening to what they are telling me from moving from club to club to club 
is a lot of these guys maybe aren't coming back in the best condition. And then the coaching staff, because they have a limited amount of time to work the hours and get these guys fit, the foot goes on the accelerator and they're off at the races from day three. And all of a sudden they wonder why they've had so many ruptured Achilles tendons, ACLs, quads, groins, calf problems, hamstring problems. And I think you can also narrow it down. We've been doing this where we've been looking at league data and specifically position data. You can start being really smart with the positions and what type of injuries that have it. So straight away, that's a risk. And therefore it's like, how do we do the risk management and risk evaluation of these players? And on the report side, I feel that teams aren't using data visualizations well enough because the platforms they're using don't do it. It's terrible. So we, we, were, we made a conscious decision that we were just going to use Power BI and Tableau in our ecosystem because they, they are the best products on the market currently that allow you to create brilliant data visualizations and simplistic visualizations and bespoke visualizations. And the idea is that those visualizations should have an effect or influence of change or influence of decision change or decision-making process. And I don't see enough of that. I don't see um, performance directors, ATCs, strength coaches looking at their injury data and sitting down with their coaching staff and saying, hey, look, this is the trend analysis we're doing on this data. We need to be able to know that when we go to pre-season next year, if I'm in the NFL, for instance, and then say, hey, this is our risks. So we need to mitigate these risks, and this is what we're going to put in place to mitigate these risks. And I just don't see it happening. Another example is hamstring injuries in the Premier League. If you look at the data of hamstring injuries in the Premier League, they're actually getting worse. And some teams are having four or five hamstrings a year. And some players in the Premier League have had four or five hamstrings over a period of three or four years, right? So these are top, top elite players. That should not happen. Calf strains should not happen. And the reason that they have happened is because there are there's not enough programs or individual programs put into play that are looking at reducing these. And if they have been given a prehab routine, they're not consistent enough with what they're doing. So all this stuff about acute chronic work ratios and looking at GPS data and, you know, you need to basically come down because we're plus or minus game day here, right? And, and the sports scientists are using the GPS data to look at this and influence what they're doing from a week to week. Great. But is it actually reducing your injuries? Yes or no? And if it isn't, then... Is your acute chronic work ratios or whatever algorithms that you're coming up with as date sports scientists, how is it affecting our availability statistics? Because you could be the best practitioner in the world and have the best algorithm and even use AI technology around it. But if your centre forward gets injured or your centre half gets injured or your goalkeeper goes down, that's a massive influence and someone that's not available to have an effect to win the game. And we've seen with, say, Liverpool and Chelsea this year, they have these devastating injury occurrences. And all of a sudden, it massively affects the performance of the team. 
it massively affects the coach to be able to pick what he needs to pick to be able to go and perform. And continuity for me in sport is not there. I think people have great ideas and great um, great concepts and they put something into play, but it's never followed. There's always an excuse about, well, you know, the coach didn't really help me here and the coach wanted them out on the park earlier and, you know, we didn't really have enough time. And, and I'm like, you're talking teams who've got $200, $300 million wage bills. What are you talking about you haven't got enough time? And I think there's a big miscommunication between the performance team, medical, strength and conditioning, sports science, and the coaching staff. Because the coaching staff need to have ownership of that as well. And I think data is and visualizations, if it's done well, is the key driver of that information because it doesn't lie. The guy's down injured and he's out for X number of games and the previous season the same, the previous season the same. He's continuously having soft tissue injury, calf, groin, hamstring, quad. You know, you know, everyone, even when I was there, we used to make excuses, you know, well, we're not doing too bad. We've got everyone out of the treatment room, okay? And, you know, we've had six and now we've got two. Well, really, what about getting zero? Or what about looking at, hey, we had so many soft tissue injuries five years ago and we put this, this, this prevention program into place and we stuck with it and everyone supported it and we haven't chopped and changed it and we followed it through and look now how our soft tissue injuries have changed between two, three, four, five years ago. It doesn't happen. I'll give you another one. Ankle injuries, Right? used to amaze me working in all those years in soccer, football, that ankle injury or lateral ligament strains were like quite common, you know, a lot of contact because they're getting kicked and hit 24-7. But if you go out on a training park and watch a warm-up of any Premier League team or any team, do you ever see them doing regularly proprioceptive work? No. They go out and they do a box they have a bit of fun with the ball and then they do some passing and then basically bang into training. doesn't make sense to me when you've got a top three injury and clearly from the evidence, just by simply doing proprioceptive exercises every single day, it's shown that it can reduce ankle injuries or reoccurrence of ankle injuries. And if you go through every Premier League soccer player, I guarantee you one of, every single one of them has had one, two, three, four ankle problems in their careers. It's so just the ability to neurologically change that. You might not prevent all of them if someone comes through you at 100 miles an hour, then, you know, it is what it is. But the ability to react and the ability to land and the ability to even correct an inversion or eversion uh, movement at the ankle, the neurological input. So we talk about neurological input for improving speed. Why aren't we looking at neurological input to improve reactions to reduce injury? It blows my mind. So I think there's some, you know, and then everyone's jumping on bandwagons now about collecting data. You know, there's so many different products for the weight room, you know. And don't get me wrong, I think that they're very useful. So, you know, whether you're measuring the speed of a bar or looking at counter-movement jumps on force plates or looking at eccentric, you know, um, asymmetries or eccentric loads and all these sensors that are their GPS. 
think it's very useful. But it's only useful if it's worked in conjunction with many other pieces of data, not just solely that. I always say, like, when I, I, I lectured quite a bit at the strength and conditioning conferences um, in America over the last sort of 10, 15 years. And, you know, people come up with various different methodologies about training and producing power and all sorts of stuff and measuring and using these tools in the gym to measure what they're doing. So you can show progression, right, which is great. You're jumping higher, you're benching faster, you're cleaning jerks quicker, whatever it is that you're doing, you know, counter move, deceleration, whatever. I get It's very useful. It's an objective marker like we would use in PT. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that because you can jump higher or you can press more or you can even run faster, that that is going to benefit you when you play your sport. Because you could be the best gym bunny in the world, but you go out on that park and you get injured or you basically can't perform for whatever reason, then whatever you're doing in the gym and whatever you're measuring in the gym is irrelevant really to what you're actually paid to do. And what teams and what we're sort of starting to see with our clients is that they're starting to look at like the statistics of the game, amalgamate that with the GPS data physically of what they're doing in the game, and then looking back of what they're doing during the week in training, in the weight room, in nutrition, in psychology, and wellness. And you can then take all those data sets if you can centralize them, is what we do at Apollo. And then you can start tracking what's relevant for that particular athlete. Because what's relevant for you is not going to be relevant for me as an athlete. And as therapists, we've, we've seen that, you know, even just in, from when you're rehabilitating treatment. What works for one, not necessarily going to be your um, best way to what's worked for someone else. And there's all sorts of other things that come into play, like I said. There's an art to it. It's the psychology. What drives that person? You know, uh, Kevin Durant, for instance, has got huge, long tendons, right? So the way that you address that when he's rehabilitating from a ruptured Achilles is different from someone who's basically like me, who's five foot eight and my tendon's quite small. The rehab and the prehab and the training and the positional training I think needs to go to the next level. And I just don't, I don't see it. People are trying to run before they walk. They're talking about, yeah, we've got this AI system. We're doing this. It's like, well, what are your injury rates being reduced? So therefore, what, what does it, what does that mean? Sounds great. You know, brings you some attention. I've got this piece of equipment that I'm putting on someone and they're measuring this and measuring that. Great. Is it having an effect? And the effect is, can we reduce our injuries? What injuries can we reduce? What programs are we putting in place to reduce those injuries? So if it was me and we were purely looking at hamstring, you look at age, past medical history, look at eccentric training, because that's proven to basically reduce um, hamstring injuries, but it's not consistent. I'm not talking about doing a Nordboard test once a week. I'm talking about actually putting it into your training regime. Neurodynamics, not done. You've got someone who's basically got tight sciatic, tight tibial, you know, not done. They're not going in and getting flossed every day. 
And then the, the, the big one for me from my experiences with the screen is can you stabilize your pelvis and lumbar spine and move your hip and your leg and rotate your hip and your leg without your pelvis moving and the segments of your spine shifting? Because all of that has an influence on the nerve and on the hamstring. So if you think about how we treat that, how we look at it, how we screen it, all of those components you could put into play and you could prioritize in a squad of 80 players in an NFL in a squad, you can prioritize, right, who are my real risks here? So let's, you know, we haven't got time to do 80 players, but then I just think that's an excuse because, well, we warm up for 40 minutes on the park. Well, why don't we put this all into play for every player as part of a warm-up? So that's the strength and conditioning job, not the ATC job. The ATC job would be to prioritize those players, do the neural floss, and then in the individual programs, you've got a week left internal oblique, you've got a week right external oblique. Here's the specific exercises I want you to do. You haven't got enough extension in your hip. You aren't activating your glute quick enough. This is what I need you to do as part of your pre-op program. And then having someone that basically drives into them and be consistent with doing that work. It's all great having these ideas, but if you haven't got someone that's being consistent and the athlete needs to have ownership of it as well, that for me is how you put a program together on a particular thing that everyone's involved with, including the coaching staff and the GM. Doesn't happen, unfortunately, and doesn't happen. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it kind of sounds like you've got um, uh, a broader inclusion where you, you, you I think you, you, it sounds like you have a bit more weight on some of the tests that tell you the input into the athlete system rather than just the sort of current trend of tech-driven hardware that tests the output of their system. Does that make sense? So you're looking at why things could be scoring a certain way rather than just looking at the scores that a product can give you. But if the product's giving you X... Okay. and you go in and do something. So let's just say, let's say we've got a 35% deficit on VAD, on a, on a Nord. And we work on eccentrically improving that hamstring, and we come back and test six weeks later, and we, we've made the asymmetry 5% difference. So what? We've used the system to tell us what, what, what it's there for. And I've gone away and practiced what something to improve but so what what's more relevant is does that individual have a hamstring problem and has he had a hamstring problem since we've done that and track it that doesn't happen and is me changing that 30% deficit to 5% deficit is it having any bearing on reducing his hamstrings or improving his speed and when he gets back or she gets back on the court or on the pitch, are they actually at the top level where we want them to be? And has that, what we've just tested and worked on, had any bearing to what they're actually going to do when they return or when they go and perform? Because that's the most important thing. And I just, everything I see, I'm like, it's so smoke. It's so much BS out there, right? It's so much people... It's difficult for me to say this because I'm on a podcast, but I feel like a lot of people, a lot of practitioners, you know, it's very much about their egos and and um, about the attention. Look at what I'm doing. 
I'm using this, this, and this. And I'm like, now, I'm like, great, fantastic. So what are you doing with it? So what? What relevance is it on what the outcome is? And that's the bit that I just think is completely clouded in all this huge data explosion. Because you, you can always make up a case study of we did this and, and here you go, we showed improvement. But there's so many variables in sport. And unless you're not looking at all those variables, pie in the sky. So, you know, whether you're just looking at GPS, okay, we put this methodology into place of monitoring. It's brilliant. I mean, I was one of the first guys to use GPS in the NBA in 2008. They didn't even hear of it. No one had heard of Catapult. I was the first guy to bring it in because we'd used it at Chelsea. People are looking at me as if I'm mad. Now, look what everyone's doing. But you've got so many different data points and therefore, what is it actually telling you and what effect can you have and how is that influencing the bottom line? And the bottom line is the game. Are they basically performing better? If they're jumping higher in the gym or they're jumping higher in the court and are they making the shot? They might be jumping higher in the game, but if they're not making the shot, then it's irrelevant what you've done in, in, on the, on the, in the gym. And all that data you've collected is completely irrelevant if you're not matching the statistical outcome of the shot. You know, three-point percentage, what are they making? Is it improving? So now do we need to combine what we're doing in the gym with regard to what they're doing with the coaches and work with the coaches? And Hey, coach, I think you should implement this, this, and this into your drill because that will mimic what I'm doing in my department. And there's a... That, that, for me, is where you really improve as a collective group for the outcome. And as I said to you at the beginning, there's two things that you should be doing. One is how can we reduce our injuries? And two, how can we improve the performance of that athlete? And when I say how we improve the performance of our athlete, you can look at metrics about running faster, running further, whatever. But what's the significance in the outcome of the game? So just because someone runs 14 kilometers in a game of soccer, it's great that they're fit and they can do that. But how many times do they win the ball? How many times do they cause a, a tackle? Because that's the relevant data to whether you can run faster or longer. Not the fact that you're just a great athlete. I mean, I guess that's when, that's when it's brought full circle to the, the, the actual purpose rather than just performing well in your silo. Correct. And unfortunately, yeah. with the data drive, there's becoming too many silos. And the left hand does not know what the right hand's doing. And I've seen some unbelievable cases, of our, even our clients, of what they're doing with the data and how they're not sharing the data. And by the time that they do share it, you know, sending emails, putting things on drop boxes, oh, it's on a spreadsheet, I'm going to send you my spreadsheet. It's too late. This all should be live. I should be able to click a button on my phone and see the information. Waiting for someone to drop something on an email or a PDF to me. I mean, we even have scenarios, people still writing stuff on pieces of paper and clipboards. So you start talking about AI and machine learning and building models and, you know, looking at simulations and all sorts of stuff. Hang on a sec. Let's, let's get 
the real basics right first and let's get all of our information together. It's mind-blowing. Obviously, you like, um, you know, I'm sure teams very often bring a question, a problem that they want you to help them report on. But how often with Apollo or, or just you professionally, do you, um, how often are you asked to kind of help guide how the department, uh, not runs, but um, implements things practically? So not just the, the you know, the, the data and the visualization of it, but actually implementing testing, scheduling things into the week. How often do you get involved in team processes within that? Only, only when I'm asked. At the end of the day, we're a service. So, you know, we will build reports for a team specifically to what their needs are. My view is the days of me, you know, doing that. And I have consulted for a couple of teams. So I consulted for a major league baseball team that actually um, did really well, won, won the World Series a few, five, six, seven years ago. And that was quite exciting. And I'm not saying anything to do with me because it isn't. Um, but it was quite interesting just going in and observing, you know, methodologies, communications, interactions, and then sort of coming up with some ideas about, you know, how even if the, if it's the 1% that could help change. So in that scenario, for instance, players would come in into their locker room at like 12 or 1 o'clock and would pay, play till 7 o'clock. And batting practice didn't start till like 3.34. And it didn't make sense to me when you've just landed from a game the night before and you get in at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning that you're in this clubhouse now again at 12, 12.30 and you're just sitting around and playing cards and you're like, well, where's, where's your recovery? Where's your rest? So one of the things that in there, just a simple thing, is that created like a sleep room because in that when you're in that clubhouse and in that locker room there's boom boxes going there's all sorts of antics going on it's like you, there's no way you can rest and having an option to be able to do that and just a quiet chilled room good beds you know here's an option for you to actually go somewhere and just get an hour because we know that that's important or influence the coach and say why you need to make sure that no one comes in at 12.30. Problem is that most of these guys have done that all their life, so that's what they've been used to. As the season goes on and you're playing 160-odd games or 80 games, 180 games, where they play Major League Baseball, I mean, that's one hell of a groundhog drain. So, again, it's like the influence, the, the education. But I don't, uh, unless I'm asked, our view is we're a service, you know, and... And if we are asked, then we'll obviously give our opinion. I think we're asked quite a lot about the best way to visualise what they're trying to do. So we do get involved with that a lot more. Um, a lot of my Power BI and Tableau developers are really good at getting the information visually to them in a really simplistic way that can affect change. But it's up to them to obviously then how they influence that within their environment. I feel it's not done well at all. I think we're kidding ourselves if, if you think it's done well. Um, and my view is it can always be done better. But I don't see structure put into place and consistency, you know, the small goals and being consistent with what you do. Now, if you're going to change a habit, um, which is what you're obviously trying to do, you've got to be ultra consistent when you're doing that, make sure that standards don't slip to change that habit 
whether it's the habit of the athlete or the habit of the coach or the habit of the environment, is everyone will revert back to type. And reverting back to type means that, well, you're doing the same shit that was done four, five, six years ago and you're not really having an influence on reducing the injuries and improving the performance. You know, I'm sure teams come to you with their specific problems and, and I'm also sure teams come to you with, you know, maybe broader outcomes that they want to achieve, whether that's with injuries or performance. There's only so much you can ask an athlete to do in a day. You know, there is such a thing as kind of test fatigue and, and schedules are hectic. Um, as a practitioner, you always want to test lots of things and get lots of data and, and go quite granular on a lot on quite a few things, but you can't. How, how do you personally sort of steer around deciding what's meaningful you know how do you decide which tests or which metrics and reports are going to give you you the most bang for your buck and and, you know pick your context so i think you've got to be quite specific with the question that you are asking and then you've got to look within your organization how where are the influences on that question that you're answering okay so obviously front and center would be the athlete um, and you know, and I know that there's many different personalities and many different types of people who are athletes. So how you influence one athlete to do something is not necessarily how you're going to influence another athlete. And that, that becomes an art and that becomes understanding your client, right? So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is, is what is it that you are trying to achieve? And most of the time those achievements come to two basic questions I keep talking about here is can we reduce the injury and can we enhance this guy's or girl's performance? They are the two big things, the big bang for your bucks. Right? So if it's around enhancing performance, what is it in the performance that the athlete and the coach or the coach or just the athlete are looking for? And then basically take that and then think about, okay, so what objectivities could we measure that would show us that there will be progression in that very specific thing? Right? So it might be playing out from the back. It might be need to close down quicker. Acceleration in America, acceleration of the first few steps is always something that was always thrown at me got to get quicker over the first two or three steps. So, okay, what are we looking at then for that? Well, we're looking for neurological input and improving that neurological input to get reaction. We're looking for power and we're looking for technique because you can actually improve that quickness on how you actually do accelerate off a standing start or rolling start. Put those principles then into play, measure them, see that you're getting progression on the specifics that you're looking at, whether it's a power generation, whether it's a speed over the first five yards, whatever you're going to use, timing gates, fourth steps, whatever, okay? And then look at, is that then paying relevance in the game? Coach, is he getting better? Look at video of the game. Look at scenarios. Show the athlete. Here's your speed here to here before we start doing this. And now here's your speed here to here. And look at what happened on the video 
and have the video and your GPS acceleration, for instance, side by side. And in the stuff we do, we can do that. We can bring a video and we can bring a, a graph side by side in, in, a, in a structured report for a client. And then you're influenced the coach and then you're influenced the athlete. So I, I think it's just being really specific, looking back at it and thinking, all right, well, where's the breakdown here? Where, where, what is it? Is it the athlete or is it the coach? Or is it the coach not getting the message to the athlete or the athlete not understanding the coach? Or is it purely physical or is it mental? What is it that will enhance this guy? And the way I always say this is that, you know, it's looking at the cake. So data and data-driven influences and data-driven issues is all around the cake. So you've got the outlayer of the cake, which is your end result. Here's my cake. And then you taste the cake and there's, again, an end result. Cake is fantastic. But in it is all the segments that make up the cake psychological, game statistics, GPS, counter-movement jumps, Nord boards, Kangatech, whatever you want to use, heart rate variability, sleep, on and on and on. But it's understanding, like, what are the big pieces of the cake? Because I can't look at all of that, or maybe you can. So take the big chunks of the cake and then see how the cake tastes and see what the outer rim of the cake and it's a really simple way, but I always find that you don't have to overcomplicate it. And I think a lot of people do overcomplicate it. I've seen the most horrendous reports with like, you know, millions of data points on this report. And, and I'm looking at it and, you know, I'm thinking, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. How on earth is that going to make a sense to a coach? Again, there's that breakdown between influencer coach rather than just doing loads of stuff internally, producing loads of research articles. Oh, these guys are really good at this. this, this. Well, okay. Number one, do they win? And number two, is their injury rates up there? Let's talk, let's talk about that because that's the most important thing for any coach or any organization. That should be the end goal. Winning and performing at the weekend and keeping everyone healthy. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, completely. And and I'm I'm nodding along, nodding along because I've just I've been enjoying hearing you kind of bring um, data and sort of like being a practitioner on the ground, full circle. Um, it, it's a uh, it's a refreshing take on um, you know on sort of on both beasts. So um, no, I, I thank you for your time today, and um, I, I know you're a busy man. Where can where can people find you? Where can people find Apollo as well? Uh, our website has an info. It's ApolloV2.com. Um, obviously, I, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not really massive on social media, um, but I am on LinkedIn. Um, and obviously, we have uh, socials for someone else runs. I have no clue about how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly a dinosaur when it comes to social media. Um, but you can definitely hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, cool. And it's been lovely to talk to you and just sort of share whether it's been of any benefit or not, I don't know, but just to share sort of um, experiences and, and how that sort of influenced the way that I feel about things and what we're trying to do really within the company. And uh, I'm quite excited about it. I think there's some really good stuff that's out there. Um, I think, as I said, uh, we always try and keep things basic to start off with. 
but there's some interesting developments that we're doing as a company, um, which I think can help in sort of some of these processes that I'm talking about today, especially on the long lines of communication and time. Um, time is always a thing that comes back every single time about um, these athlete management tools and software and like just don't have time, right? We've got limited time because there's so much being drilled in or needed from the athlete, even now from a media perspective. You know, they've got to go and do this photo shoot or do this interview. And it's just it's overwhelming. Um, so I think like technology, so for instance, in our system, we've got like voice dictation. So you don't have to type your notes anymore. You can press a button on your phone and talk into your phone and it's dictated into the, into the medical file or coach's file or strength and conditioning file. And I think things like that, using technology from your phone and being on the move and being able to get stuff in and saving people time is also quite interesting. And we're working on something at the minute. I can't tell you too much, but it's, um, my view is it will be a game changer in communication and saving people time. Well, We'll look out for that, and we'll I'll um I'll put all your social links for Apollo V two and yourself on the on the episode show notes and description. But um, I've no doubt that was valuable to lots of people. So yeah, thank you very much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.